Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. I think that's so important because I think, especially in California, but really across the country, a lot more awareness about local produce and what it represents. So much better to see and you're supporting the community. So this farm to table movement, I think, has a ring of familiarity to it. However, the cocktail part of it, meaning, you know, farm to cocktail glass is not quite as acknowledged. And I think you're such a vocal proponent of it. And it just is delicious, it's attractive, it supports the community. I almost want to say that I want every bar to adapt it, that mentality. Yeah, no, I <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, I should say, first of all, that there's not a single original idea in my book. <laughs> like, it, there really isn't. Every single technique, every single idea, you know, came from a chef or from another bartender um, or from, you know, people like Alice Waters and Thomas Keller. And, you know, and, and in the beginning of the book, I thank every one of them. Uh, you know, most of these are just classic recipes or classic sour cocktails that are just sort of redone a, a different way. But, um, you know, my intention was to really, primarily at the time, it was to enhance the guest experience at Cyrus, where, you know, aside from walking in and speaking with the host and talking about your, you know, getting sat, I, I might be the, you know, I'm the next person you might interact with. And the first thing that you put in your mouth will, could be one of my drinks. Uh, the first thing that you see in terms of our product at Cyrus, you know, could be a cocktail. And I, that was a tremendous res responsibility. Yeah. Not just because we were under so much scrutiny, but because, you know, we really were taking pride in what we were doing, you know, I mean, and I was part of the team. Now that I kind of felt a little more comfortable with my own abilities and that took some time, I was like, oh, I was like, okay, now I do have their trust. They know that I'm, I'm producing good product, you know, Nick and Doug and everybody else there. And I was like, I got to, you know, I got to keep this up. I got to do better. Just like the kitchen constantly strives to do better. So, you know, that was my initial objective. So, I mean, yes, I do believe in all of those things about using local for, all of the reasons it's seasonal more delicious it supports the you know local economy um it just tastes better in most cases you know i believe in all those things but at the time it was really just about this thing that was cyrus that it was uh, you know wanted to i wanted to, to do it justice what it was and uh, yeah it was a funny thing back then you know yelp was starting to like yelp was a totally new thing i, I think it started in it was like the mid 2000s i'm not positive i could look it up but it was somewhere around 2005 or six and and we used to take that kind of scrutiny so seriously. It wasn't just the Michael Bauer reviews. It wasn't just Gourmet Magazine. It was like, it was like, what did this person say that walked in there that you know, isn't a professional critic? And if, if we got a bad one, we would seriously have to sit down pre-service and like talk about it like it was Michael Bauer or the New York Times. And it was, you know, was, a lot of these people were crazy. Some of them, you know, made legitimate criticisms, but it was like, I'll never forget how absolutely seriously took this. And, you know, sometimes the drink thing wouldn't come up and it was like, oh, God, you know, and you start to worry about it every day. Um, anyway, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, that's some criticism that uh, the era that we live in has now been enhanced. I don't know how many times over with social media proliferation can certainly be a double-edged sword. But, you know, presumably that it's a fair equation um, and people that participate in, you know, the dining, the cocktail experience really judge it on its merit. I really love the idea of rewarding those, as you described, the elevated guest experience. 
And I truly believe it can happen at any level. It doesn't have to be necessarily only attached to free Michelin star. It's really the mindset in your case behind the bar that honors that the most. Um, I understand, like I said, in the perfect world, everyone would be working with exclusively fresh ingredients and produce something, you know, of, of, you know, fantastic quality. But at the end of the day, all those incremental decisions that lead up to it, the type of spirits you put on the bar, you know, it's, yes, economics is part of it, but also just being acutely aware of what you're trying to create. Um, and you've launched quite a few bar programs. And the next thing I'm going to ask you is all the consulting jobs that you've done for various restaurants, because I remember realizing that it's your cocktail before I was told that you were the one that wrote the program. It was just so obvious that the level of integrity was, you know, quite there here and present. Um, so I just want to highlight for the listeners that next time you go to a bar, I think if you were fortunate like myself and saw someone like Scott at work and, and also realized that he made it his life's work to make sure that every cocktail that comes out from his hand, you know, something that you would enjoy and look forward to next one. Um, this really should be more of a norm. And I think as consumers, we should think about, um, you know, what we can do on our part to make sure that it's this partnership happens. I think we need to be more vocal and request, you know, things that we want and that would make us happier. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can tell you, you know, we're, we're all hypocrites at times, you know, <laughs> given the fact that I've been furloughed from both of my full-time jobs, which were serving as the beverage director for Meadowood Estate Events and working as a brand ambassador for 209 Gin and the Splinter Group whiskeys, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm on unemployment right now. You know, I'm drinking a lot of White Claw and wine out of the box, you know, <laughs> just because I'm on a budget, you know, it doesn't, you know, and that's a consideration for people all the time, of course, you know, but right now, you know, it's, it's a different, um, it's a different situation. I'm, I'm feeling, you know, today being uh, June 7th, you know, I'm starting to feel a lot more optimistic the last, than the last time that you and I had a chance to talk, which was a couple of weeks ago. You know, Healdsburg itself, the restaurants are open again. The retail shops are open again. Um, people are out, you know, pretty much respecting the rules and social distancing and everything. But, I, I mean, I'm starting to see a lot more uh, glimmers of hope. I mean, we're all concerned right now, you know, whether if in a week or two things are going to spike again. Nobody knows. But, um, you know, I was, it was uh, the first few weeks of this whole thing I was getting pretty dark about it you know because nobody knew how long it was going to last and certainly that you know when you're making decisions at the supermarket and for what you're going to have to drink at night you know with, with no end in sight you're you know you no, you can't get the $40 bottle of local you know gin <laughs> that's just I mean you can but is, is that practical anymore no not really so maybe you just maybe what I'm saying is that you know when, when you do have have the opportunity to to um to go local um, you know, you do it, you know, I think, I think the produce is, is, is really essential. I mean, spending time in farmers markets, getting to know farmers, a lot of times those things end up being pretty similar price than what you, you would pay at a conventional supermarket. You know, I think that's really, really essential. At least that is where I live. I mean, some people, it, it might be a different case in other places, but in Healdsburg, the prices are generally really reasonable, you know, for what you're getting. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, that's a good place to start, you know. 
but um, but with, with 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 spirits and wine and things, yes, of course. I I, I have so many friends that are winemakers and, and distillers, and you know, I um, you know, I love to support them. But it's tough, you know, when when you know you have you know with the, with the current situation. I have to say, perhaps I'm a bit spoiled. I did spend a lot of time in Healdsburg, specifically. My favorite watering hole became Spoon Bar, and of course, Duke's is fantastic. A few things open in the East Bay, and yesterday I had a $16 margarita that was entirely forgettable. It made me miss <laughs> the happy hour at Spoon Bar very, very badly. <laughs> and ironically, there was a farmer's market very close to the restaurant, meaning like not even a 30-second walk, where they could have probably procured something interesting uh, for the set cocktail, but it was a spicy margarita, so I should qualify that or it was supposed to be. So it just, it made me realize how much it means, you know, when someone really delivering something of value. Yeah. Well, I've been having some, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to live like right on the Russian river um, in town in Healdsburg and have a big backyard with a, with kind of a, a South American uh, uh, style barbecue, uh -huh. you know, in, in the, in the center of the, of the lawn. And so I've been able to do some awesome, you know, small dinners here lately. Uh -huh. um, which are pretty much social distancing. Like, I, and, and I'll do all the cooking of the food, and I just ask my my friends to come over and bring wine. And I have a lot of friends in the wine business, and um, some distiller friends too, but mostly friends that are in the wine business. And that way, we're able to like share a meal outside. I love to cook. You know, in fact, in my life, I think I love cooking first, then wine, then spirits and cocktails and everything else. Um, so that's that's been a nice way for me to enjoy local wine from my friends and still get to do cooking, which I love, and still have the social distancing, you know, uh, that, that essential thing right now. Um, yeah. No, I mean, I think that if I were to ask you, like you said, you'd probably say you probably just as easily could have been a chef, right? Is that your other profession that you might definitely, have? Definitely, definitely, absolutely. Yeah. It's never too late, you know? Yeah, well, you are a chef. I mean, you just happen to chef at home. Um, but, you know, the entire concept of putting the ingredients together and, and balancing them out is, you know, in winemaking and cooking and craft cocktails. I mean, that's what the centerpiece is. Everyone talks about balance. Definitely. Uh, so how do you define it? What do you look for? For balance? Um, I mean, in... I mean, in, in, in food, you know, I think about something like a really fatty, delicious ribeye, you know, what's complementary to that, um, you know, sauce wise, it might be like a, a wonderful chimichurri, um, uh, that has lots of red wine vinegar in it and olive oil and fresh cut herbs and raw garlic and maybe a little pimenton, something that sort of balances out that fat. You know, yeah. If you were talking about wine, you know, you would, you would want to have a, like a red wine that definitely had some, some strong tannins to it, some good texture, you know, not too sweet, obviously, um, something that really, you know, could, could balance well with all that richness of a, of a ribeye. Because um, if you have a wine that's too flabby, you know, or too light, it's just not going to be, it's not going to be too complimentary. You want something with really great structure that's going to hold up well to that. Um, when you start talking about cocktails, if you, if you look at cocktails by themselves, not a cocktail that you would really have with food, but a cocktail by itself, um, you know, when you talk about sour cocktails, those are really just the, the trifecta of things that are going on there. It's, 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 you know, you have spirit, you have acid, and you have sugar. Um, you know, look at something like a daiquiri, you're going to have um, rum, you're going to have very fresh lime juice, 
and then usually simple syrup. And the traditional ratio for a daiquiri is like two, one, one, two parts spirit, one part fresh lime juice, one part sweet. You know, um, I think as, as the years go on, you know, um, people have, have really backed off on that sugar because you're, you're you know, you're going to use hopefully high quality rum, very fresh lime juice, not sweet and sour. And, um, you know, you, you, because you have excellent quality with, with two of those three things, you know, you really, you can back off on the sugar because, you know, traditionally sugar was used to hide the flavor of, of bad booze. You, you do need it in cocktails to kind of create balance, you know, especially with sour ones um, or with something like an old fashioned where you want to take kind of the edge off the booze. But, you know, uh, if you were using, uh, if you were using a high quality bourbon to make your old fashioned, you know, maybe back off on the sugar, like a ratio of like, eight to one in terms of booze to simple syrup and then a blend of bitters after that is really all you need but if you're using crappy bourbon you might you might have to up that to two or three parts to hide the flavor of the bad booze um but going back to the daiquiri you know once you've created that balance you can start to build things on top of that you know uh, a mojito is really just a daiquiri with mint and soda when you think about it right you just muddled a little mint in the beginning and you build your daiquiri and then you finish it with soda. That's kind of, it's really what it is. If you, if you can get that, that core, those core three things in place, at least with sour cocktails, get that balance right, you can, you can go a lot of different directions. There. You know, uh, you look at a whiskey sour, same thing. It's, it's, it's two, one, I would recommend about three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup rather than two, one, one. If you're using good whiskey, fresh lemon juice, then all you need is about three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup. You know, and you can also fill that out with soda. You know, you can, um, I like to add Angostura bitters in my whiskey sours. Some people like to shake them up with a little egg white, which creates a beautiful texture uh, for the whiskey sour. There's, there's a lot of ways you can go with it. But really, you, first of all, use a jigger when you're making cocktails. Uh, if you want to eyeball your martini or eyeball your gin and tonic, use one, two ingredient things. Um, that's fine. But um, once you get into multi-ingredient cocktails, you really want to measure it, not just so that you're consistent, but also so that you can think about what you're doing and make adjustments and then be, then be consistent with what you think tastes good, whether you're a home bartender or a professional bartender. But yeah. No, it makes sense. Um, so hopefully we'll get to go out again soon. I think most of us are chomping in a bit and it's finally happening. Um, so in terms of the conversation between the patron and a bartender, I keep thinking about what right questions should we ask? I mean, when we're asking for a beverage, what, how can we enhance our own experiences with your help? Well, I mean, it depends on what you're, you're curious about. If you're curious about everything, um, that's one thing. But if, if you were curious about a particular spirit, for example, I know it can be daunting for a lot of people to walk into a liquor store and take bourbon, for example, and there's just this wall of brown liquor, and it's like, ah, I don't know what to get. And there's shelf talkers that are screaming at you and things on sale, and it's like, <laughs> you know, and that's an investment. You're spending, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 dollars, whatever it might be on a, on a bottle or more. Um, and if you end up not liking it, it's like, eh, what do I do with it? <clears throat> I think that uh, when we are allowed to go back to bars, um, being able to, to have a flight of liquor is a wonderful thing. And I think any, any bar worth its salt will, will, will provide that to you. You know, obviously the, the bars that are focused on agave spirits, I'm sure they'll do those for you there. You know, there's a lot of whiskey bars, speakeasy bars that'll set it up for you. Even if it's not on the menu, I think you could just ask, be like, hey, I want to try three bourbons. And they'll pour you like, you know, a half ounce of each or three quarters of an ounce of, of each. And then that way you get to, you get to, to try three things and avoid that scary 
experience at the store. Um, if you're a cocktail person, I mean, I have this a lot with, with young bartenders at Meadowood. I get these, these like 21 year old youngsters that, that work with me in the events department. And then a lot of times they'll be like, I want to be a bartender. And it's like, okay, what's your favorite cocktail? And they go, I'll drink Jack and Coke. I'm like, okay, you know, <laughs> if you want, if you want me to mentor you, if you really want to do this, um, I, I want you to start when you go out, don't, don't order Jack and Cokes anymore. Go to places that are known for cocktails and, um, don't drink the same thing twice for a while. So look yeah. at the menu. If you if you're planning on having two or three drinks while you were there, order two or three different drinks, and then don't go back to that restaurant for a while. Go to another one, and and again try two or three different things, whatever it might be, and keep a journal, take notes, and then if you come back to me in a few months, you know, and and we can have a conversation. We can start talking the same language. Um, you know, absolutely, I'll mentor you. You want to be a bartender? I would rather have somebody that's young and hungry and curious and, and really, obviously, to be a bartender, I think you have to have somewhat of an extroverted personality to begin with. Um, so that's important. But, uh, yeah, I want people that are genuinely curious. And, and I've, I've, I've mentored a lot of people over the, the uh, I've been bartending 24 years now. Um, and that's, you know, that's, um, you know, I think that's an essential thing. I mean, I had people that, that I looked up to that took the time to, to teach me about about great food and great drinks and wine and everything else, and I think that's a that's a lifelong process. I'm still so, you know, there's, I, I know very very little <laughs> when it comes to um, so many things in this business, and and that's part of the reason why I'm in it is I love the learning process. I mean, I had a funny thing. Uh, I ended up going swimming up in the Eel River um, two days ago with some friends. I was up in Potter Valley. Um, and one of the people, one of the friends of my friends that was up there was this 25-year-old woman who um, apparently is like studying um, natural plants. She's like, a, she's been, she's gone to three different schools to, to learn about, um, you know, wild plants. And her and I started talking and, and her, we ended up walking over to the side of the river and she pointed out these things that I've seen, you know, so many times before, but, but didn't know what they were. And one of them was St. John's Wort. The <laughs> other was Penny, Penny Royal. And then there was also lemon balm growing. And some of the thing called mulin, which I've never, I never, I might be saying it wrong, but it's this big, beautiful plant. Um, and these are things that I've seen for years, and I and I and I, I've heard the names, but I never knew that those were wild plants. And here I am, you know, 45 years old, still learning about wild things, you know. And, and I, I love that. It's just, it's just, it's a huge category. I mean, all the categories, whether it's, it's wild things or wine or spirits or whatnot. But just to have somebody give me that little bit of knowledge on a day when I didn't even think I was going to be learning anything. I thought I was just going to get some sun and enjoy the water with my friends. And here's this, this woman that's like, oh, that's that, that's that. It's mind blown. It's awesome. So, yeah. Right. St. John's wort on a medicine bottle or some sort of holistic, you know, stuff. But I didn't realize that it grew in California. Now you got me curious. I'm going to actually Google it. Um, so you're right. Lifelong learning and curiosity is super important in anything you do, including when you're at the bar. Get yourself out of the comfort zone. Try something else. Who knows what you'll discover? Um, speaking of the bar, I mean, in your body of work, you had to have tasted so many spirits. It scared me to even think about it. And there's all these choices, what winds up, you know, on the bar and what you work with. What criteria do you use? How do you go about it? Determining what goes behind the bar. What goes behind your bar, like of all the whiskey selections, that just say you have 
um, an opportunity to buy a dozen different brands for your bar, just as an example, randomly. Which brands would wind up on your bar and why? Uh, I mean, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I think you, first of all, have to look at the exact demographic that you're expecting to come into your place. You know, the neighborhood local bar is going to be different than the, you know, high-end, fancy, new downtown San Francisco bar, of course. You know, the, the, the type of cuisine is relevant, mm -hmm. obviously. You know, if you're going to be doing Mexican food, you're going to need to be very heavy on tequila and mezcal and those things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, depends on, it depends on the place, but when you're always going to have to have some things that people are familiar with. You know, say you're opening up a place where you're expecting people to buy a lot of whiskey for whatever reason. You know, uh, maybe it's like great American food with a lot of fried things and burgers and whatnot. And you know, just, oh, this, this part of town has a lot of bourbon drinkers here. Um, you're going to need to pick some things that people are familiar with. Um, you know, a lot of bigger brands like, you know, Mrs. Mark or Jim Beam or, you know, the Jim Beam brands like, uh, you know, Knob Creek and Basil Hayden that are in that family. Bookers. Um, but then, you know, you, in the days leading up to, to opening the place, you know, you're going to want to, you know, you reach out to distributors and maybe try some of the newer things out there. Some of the local things, you know, there's some fantastic brown liquor that's made locally. Um, you know, a lot of them tend to be on the young side. Um, but some of them can be quite good, especially if they're, you know, aging them in quarter barrels, smaller barrels. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, paramount to everything else should be deliciousness. You don't want to put anything on there that's, that's, uh you know, ridiculous, like cinnamon-flavored whiskey. <laughs> Unless you're at a nightclub, maybe that flies there, you know. Um, what's that stuff called? Is that cinnamon whiskey? <laughs> Not hot, damn. I'm getting so old. Uh, I asked you. Sorry. I'm totally spacing on it right now. What is that, that famous cinnamon-flavored whiskey? Uh, it's the day I'll, I'll think of it. Not I'll think of it later. Um... um but, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, you, you definitely want to stick to, to, to things that one you think are going to sell well, that are going to be well received and, um, you know, have some familiarity to it. Um, and then get some things that you're really passionate about that you tasted that are, that are awesome. Um, yeah. There's always a staples. I remember asking a few years back what you cannot live without in your bar. And I believe you said Fernet Branca. Is that so? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. Uh, actually, the first time I ever had Fernet Branca, I was working at the Blue Light, so I was 21. And we used to have these Monday night hermit crab races, just because, you know, it's a slow night, but there was a board, which was probably five feet by five feet, and it had, like, all these bullseye rings in it. And they had these little hermit crabs that lived in a terrarium, and people would paint them with numbers on them. And so what you would do is everybody would pick their number, and you would put the crabs in the center bullseye with a bowl over it. And then you'd lift the bowl up and they'd all go scurrying out. And the one that got to the outer ring first won. And so we would get prizes like t-shirts and baseball hats and sometimes like a, a double shot of liquor. And uh, one night my, my crab won and uh, I, I won a double shot of, uh, of Fernet. And I was, I was just like, ooh, double shot. And I was thinking, it's like, what is Fernet? I don't even know. It's like a whiskey. And I shot it, and I, I nearly had a heart attack. I was like, what is that? And they're like, it's Fernet, man. I'm like, that tastes like cough medicine. And it was kind of painful. But uh, over time, it ended up becoming one of my favorite things. But yeah, the first time I ever had a shot of Fernet, it was a double, and I just didn't, didn't no idea what I was doing. Um, 
it's more of a digestive, you know, yeah. first classification. So a lot of people are really unfamiliar with it, but it's, it's not herb liqueur, right? Well, the, the, in San Francisco back then, at least it was, I think the San Francisco area was the, like the third largest consumer for net after Argentina and Italy was uh, because of, you know, our, our history with Italian folks living in, um, in San Francisco, like in North Beach and, and, and everywhere else. Um, Fernet always had a strong, strong following. Um, but uh, yeah, it's not for everyone. Definitely more pleasant after you've had a meal. But um, for a lot of us, I think we just end up having a huge affection for it, both out of nostalgia and the fact that it is, it is pretty tasty. There's a lot of Amaros and Fernets out there, but there's something about Fernet Bronco. It's, it's just right. It does have a little caramel in it, but not too much. So it's not super sweet. Strong amount of bitter. Um, yeah, I still enjoy it to this day. That's awesome. Um, in terms of culture, drinking culture, since we touched upon the digestive, have you noticed any difference? You've had a 24-year career so far. How people drink? I mean, I've often wished that we were more into a pre-digestive kind of a situation before and after the meal. When I travel to Europe, I really enjoy that aspect of it. It's very, very common to have something before dinner and then finish it with something like um, yeah. or, or, you know, grappa or something like that in Italy. And, you know, definitely friends in Italy are very good about finishing their meals properly. Um, what about American culture? Like, how are we drinking? Are we drinking any differently in your experience? Um, well, I mean, not to bring it back to White Claw again, but that, that hard seltzer beverage category has just exploded. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember um, at Bottle Rock last year, so this is about 13 months ago, <laughs> there was that stuff truly out there, which is a hard seltzer. And I, I was like, what is this? I don't even know. And they're like, it's kind of like Zima. And I was like, oh, Zima from the 90s. It was like malt liquor and soda. It's like, I actually remember kind of liking that. That was nice. But, you know, uh, basically that type of hard seltzer started coming back just about a year ago. And, then, um, and uh, or at least that's the first time I noticed it. And now you go to the, the supermarket and it's just like, you know, there's like a whole section devoted to it. You know, there's, there's, yes. there's like a dozen different brands. There's, there's some local ones. Even there's ones being made in Sebastopol right now. Picks, um, which is actually pretty tasty, all national ingredients and whatnot. Um, but uh, you know, that's that that's a new thing. But you could also say that with cocktail programs, the sort of refreshing, lower ABV type of cocktail, the Aperol spritz type of thing, you know, um, that that's become a, a new thing. Um, or I'm sorry, it's become a more popular thing over the last few years for sure. And that's something that's been a part of European drinking, you know, for for a long time. But uh, I myself, I love you know, like Italian vermouth and soda. You know, I think it's fantastic. I usually jack it up with a little bit of Angostura bitters just to give it some more flavor. But, um, you know, it, it, it's something that, that helps, you know, helps you, helps you keep your wits about you, at least in the early part of the evening. You know, you're just having a lower alcohol, very refreshing, um, you know, cocktail with lots of ice, maybe in an oversized glass. And that's great on a hot day. You know, that's a, that's a great, that's a great thing. Do you attribute it to kind of a generational shift that the millennial demographic prefers low alcohol, more refreshing um, beverages, as opposed to older generation that kind of went for the maximum impact with martinis and old fashioned and so and such? I, I mean, I think if you asked me if I had a favorite drink, I don't think I could give you an absolutely you know um, 
certain answer. I think it depends on where you are, the time of year, the place that you are, you know, all of that. You know, if I'm in New York City on a cold winter night, yes, I'm going to want something that's boozier and stronger, um, like a martini or Manhattan or whatnot. You know, if I'm in New Orleans, New, or- New Orleans is one of those places that doesn't really matter. You're always going to want to have a Sazerac or an old fashioned or something. <laughs> Or French 75. But think about a French 75. That's, that's you know, that's it's got its core little base, you know, and then it's filled out with sparkling wine. You know, that's also a very refreshing cocktail. I like mine on ice. You know, when you go to our nodes, that's, that's usually not how they serve us. But, but I, you know, I remember when we did the Napa Valley Wine Auction uh, last year, we served a thousand French 75s over ice um, within one hour to all of the guests as they were arriving. And I kind of did it my way. I put a put a little absinthe in it and put some flowers and mint in it. But, um, you know, it was, it was a French 75 over ice, which was perfect. It was 95 degrees. We served it in huge oversized stemless burgundy glasses. It was, I think it was the, the appropriate drink, but, um, you know, going back to what I'm saying, you know, it's, it's, uh, depends on where you are, what time of year it is. You know, um, I love the good, I love a great gin and tonic, like a Spanish style gin and tonic in an oversized glass. That's a little boozier, but you know, you might spend you know forty-five minutes or an hour drinking it. You know, it's um, yeah, right drink at the right place. Well put. I'm still marveling over your comment about serving a thousand French seventy-fives on ice. Napa <clears throat> Valley. Um, how in the world are you able to achieve this? I mean, the consistency and the timing of it. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.